Now please turn with me back in your Bibles to uh, Matthew, um, sorry, to Psalm 19. Um, and we'll read again um, the last couple of verses, actually just, a, in fact, even just the last verse, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We bow in prayer before we, we study the word. Heavenly Father, as we come for a, a short time this evening before you in the word, we pray for our hearts that just as David was anxious that his thoughts would be acceptable, we, we too pray the same thing. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this evening be acceptable in your sight. May they be found on the right things. And may we behold Christ Jesus in the words of the psalm. We ask and pray that we would therefore see him tonight indeed as our rock and our redeemer. We pray for that special working of the Holy Spirit tonight that would enable us all to say this. And so we ask, Father, for that work of the Holy Spirit to go on, for hearts tonight to be opened, changed, transformed, renewed, for our footing to be made sure, for us to be taken from the uncertainty of unbelief and given firm standing, firm and true, where we can know your presence and your salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 19 is almost certainly um, sort of up there amongst the, the list of uh, favorite psalms. Um, if, C you know, if C.S. Lewis can describe it as the greatest lyric in the world, then that's really saying something. Um, C.S. Lewis himself being a, a literature prof uh, from Oxbridge, you, you kind of think, wow, if he thinks it's up there, then it must be. And, and I think that's certainly the case. I remember learning the words of this psalm, reciting them for psalmody classes and competitions. God's law is perfect and converts the soul in sin that lies. They're words that stick with you. And when we talk in the English language, so much of the idiom that we use when we talk about simple minds comes from the psalm. The vocabulary of it has kind of seeped into the English language almost in quite a profound way. It's a psalm that gushes with praise for God because of really two strands of God's revelation of himself. There is on the one hand, the, the, the first, the opening half of the psalm is on the, the strand of the world of nature, that the natural world that we observe shows us something of what our God is like. There is, David says, they are uttering speech. And so there's communication happening, information is being 
imparted, language has been spoken. And then at the same time, David says, there's also this thing he calls God's law. For David, that would literally be the Torah, the the books of the Pentateuch as we have them. God's revelation of himself through Moses to his people and the words that he has spoken. Perhaps finding their climax at Mount Sinai where God has spoken there and said, I am the Lord your God who took you out of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. And I will establish you in a promised land. I will be your God. You will be my people. So we have these two strands of revelation and thought in this psalm. And that's certainly where we need to focus our attention, I think, this evening on these two things. But also on the response that they call for. Because David doesn't just say, isn't it wonderful that God speaks to us in nature? Isn't it wonderful that God speaks to us in his word? David recognizes as the psalm draws to its close that God is also calling us to respond in some way. It's not enough for us simply to be impressed. It's not enough for us simply to be informed. Both of these things can happen with either the world of nature. We can be impressed with a sunset or the aurora borealis. We can be impressed with things that we read in God's word. We can be informed. We can be wonderfully informed of things as we study the world of nature and as we learn how the world works and as we think about the scientific principles that lie behind everything in the cosmos. And we can be impressed equally and informed by what we read in the scriptures. But it's not enough for us just to be impressed When David comes to his conclusion in the psalm, and we'll see this, it's so important. His question is, who can discern his errors? Who has an understanding, therefore, of the things that are wrong? Not out there, but in here. Who can understand their hearts because of what they have learned? from these two strands of revelation. So our hearts should be exposed under the light of nature and the light of revelation. And that's the theme that David is building towards in this psalm. I think to kind of get it, I heard a really good illustration recently of the way we, we so often misunderstand this. It was about a lady who worked in a, in, in a laboratory. Um, she was a, a botanist, and um, her life was studying plants. And uh, one day, one of her colleagues left uh, a specimen for her, uh, a plant specimen on her desk. And so she begins to examine the, the specimen. And she's looking at it, and she discovers as she probes into the biology of this plant and into the chemistry of the plant, she discovers all sorts of wonderful new things, new fragrances that have not been discovered before. And through the discoveries that she makes from these fragrances, um, entire sectors of the perfume industry are transformed and many jobs 
flow from that. It was commercial success. And in amongst all of these strange and wonderful chemical processes that are going on inside this plant, she also discovers that there's wonderful medicinal purposes and that these wonderful medicines can be taken and can be understood and can be analyzed and applied to some of the most grave illnesses that are possible for us to experience. And there are cures found for cancers and for Alzheimer's and all sorts of things. And the lady wins a Nobel Prize for her wonderful scientific endeavor. Thoroughly well deserved. And everyone is amazed at her accomplishments. And everyone's amazed at the specimen that led to all of this as well. The colleague who gave her the specimen said, I just gave you a rose because I liked you. It was very simple. It was a sign of his affection for her. And she had taken it as something simply to be examined and discovered about, rather than understanding the love that lay behind it. And when we come to anything in nature and in God's word, that lesson, I think, is important for us to remember. We can examine these things. We can drill down into them. But we can miss the character of our God behind it and his intention in what he has done. So we should keep that in mind as we launch into this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we're asked to consider the glory and wonder of God and what he has made. That's what David wants us to do as he begins in this psalm. We realize early on, he's, he's not simply singing the praises of the world. David doesn't say, look at how wonderful this world is. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the idea of glory in scripture is very much tied up with the idea of light. And so for David, as he's thinking about this, he's thinking about, obviously, the sun, the moon, as a lesser light, and the stars that shine their light upon us and, and, and he's saying that the heavens what's up there visible to us out into the reaches of space the heavens are saying to us something about our God and that's certainly the case we, we know more and more today than David ever did and what we know is the universe is vast. The universe is vast. It's vast actually beyond our wildest sense of comprehension. The, the light that we see as we look up into the heavens is so incredible. It's come from so far away. And as we, we look at it as well, we see there's, there's, a, there's a wonder, not only in the grandeur and the vastness of the universe that we see, but also in the finest, tiniest little things that are perceptible as well. When we look at the light that comes from the sun or the light that comes from the moon or the stars, when we see that light that's reflected to us or radiates towards us, what we're actually seeing are some of the tiniest packets of energy that the cosmos has and photons. And even today, we still don't fully understand 
Even the finest minds don't quite grasp the fullness of the reality of the quantum mechanics that are going on inside light as these tiny little packets of energy photons have the principles of a particle but also the effects of a wave traveling. And it's really strange. There's really weird things about it. And David's saying, whether we look into the vastness of the cosmos or whether we drill down and see the smallest, tiniest visible things in the cosmos, we, we see something of the glory of God. The glory of God revealed in his vastness and his power, but also the glory of God revealed in his intricacy and his attention to detail. There are huge forces at play in this cosmos, which amazingly have to be exactly what they are in order for humankind to exist. Like the universe itself that God has made, it's fine-tuned to allow the existence of us. It's an incredible thought. That in creating this vast cosmos in which our planet seems to orbit a fairly ordinary star in what's actually a fairly small insignificant galaxy in the grand scheme of things, that God has ordered all of that cosmos and all of the forces of gravity that are at work and all of the forces of electromagnetism that are at work, everything that's happening out there in the universe, all of it is focused on the beings that God has created in this world and said, these are mine, my image bearers. These are my creatures who I have created to explore and study and discover me. Because that's ultimately our purpose revealed in what God has made, that we are here for him to find his glory. That's why we so often ignore it. That's why we struggle with it, in fact. By nature, we don't want to discover the glory of God. By nature, we want to reject it. That's what sin really does. It, it wants to dethrone God from that place of ultimate glory in our lives where he is the one who is the highest most glorious object of our attention we want to reject that we want to have nothing to do with it and that's what so often happens we, we get lost we ignore the God who is in creation and who is visible for us to see He's left his fingerprints everywhere. And we pay no attention. And, and you see that in the way the psalm goes on. The, the words David says, when, when, you, when you stop and you study and you analyze and you look and you wonder, the communication of all of this cosmos, it's saying something to us. And what it's saying is reminding us that we are creatures, created beings. And there's no escaping that.
way David describes it, he thinks about it the way the sun tracks through the sky. From his perspective, it rises away off in the east and it sets in the west. And as the sun traverses its course through the heavens, what David says is very interesting. Nothing is hidden from it. There's nothing that escapes the heat of the sun. There's nothing, there's nothing hides away from it. There's nothing left unexposed. And that's his point, which leads him to that conclusion about discerning our errors. That when we look at the world, when we look at the universe, when we look at everything that we see in nature around about us, it points us in a certain direction. That we are creatures, yes, but also accountable creatures. See, the universe tells us that there is a thing called cause and effect. There is a natural justice hardwired into the entire cosmos. There are some things, some offenses that are so grave, they call out for justice. They call out for punishment. There are some sins that are so revolting, they call out for punishment. We don't even need God's law to go and tell us that. It's hardwired into nature. There are things so bad that they have consequences. And part of the greatest obvious reality of that is the certainty of death. That tonight, every one of us would be wise to number our days. It is wise for us to reconcile ourselves to that fact that death will come. Unless the Lord returns, death will come. No matter how much we may try to avoid it, no matter how much we may try to push it away, no matter how much we try to ignore it, the reality of this world is that death is inevitable. And there is no escaping it. universe tells us that there is a cause and effect and there is a force of decay in effect all the time our bodies will one day fail our minds may fail and an end will come and the question for us really should be why I mean, what speech is the world telling us that this awful reality is in fact the truth? Why is this? Is it just because there are forces at work in the universe? Nature itself is just red in tooth and claw? Or is it simply the fact that we have failed morally? Because you see, whilst the world of nature and cosmos may point us towards these things, David says there's more information that we need as well. To understand that why question, to grapple with that question, we need the, the second strand of revelation. Now what's fascinating in this psalm is that at verse 7 it changes meter. I mean, David wants us to consciously, it'd be really funny as you're singing it, it's like singing short meter for the first six verses and then singing long meter for the second half. It's like it just changes, the structure in Hebrew 
completely transforms at verse 7. And I think that's because David wants to reinforce this idea that these two strands, they complement each other, but, but they reveal to us different orders of information. So the universe might reveal to us that there is something wrong. It doesn't reveal the solution. It doesn't tell us how to fix this terrible, terrible consequence that we all face. It doesn't tell us how to avoid death. But there is something real that is given to us, a revelation which brings life. That's where David starts in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It brings life into our experience. It brings renewal into us. And it sets on fire that which was dying. It ignites it into life. And that tonight is what God's word is doing wherever it's been preached. It's bringing new life into the experience of men and women. Because the word of God is not merely this revelation of truth that we have in our Bibles. It found its climax, its culmination in the person of God the Son. Remember how John describes him in John 1. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal logos of God. The perfect law of God. Revives the soul of man. It's in the person of Jesus that these things actually find their fulfillment. Not merely the fact that God has spoken, but God has spoken in the person of his son in these latter days. And because God has given us a revelation of his own person and his grace in the person of his son, we therefore tonight have hope. Because the testimony of the Lord is sure and it makes wise the simple. It does something that nature can't. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. There's good things to be discovered when we listen to what God is saying to us in his word. When we discover the the wonder of God's purposes. Yes, we might say God is vast. And we might even look at nature and say God is just. And require justice. But it's to the Bible that we go to discover that God is merciful and that God brings grace. That's why we can sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. That's why we can sing of the mercy that God shows. That's why we can even say tonight the fear of the Lord is clean. It's not terrifying to us. It's not something that leaves us feeling terrified and panicked and uncertain. It's something that gives us confidence tonight to say, I know where my future lies. I know where my hope is found. I know they're good. That's why David says they're so precious. Because God's revelation in the Bible, which finds its climax in the person of Jesus, ultimately, is so perfect, so good, 
so utterly satisfied for the ultimate needs of our hearts. That need that's exposed by the world in which we live. Like I want you tonight to, to consider this. Consider the realities that you know. Consider that you know wrong must be punished. Consider that you know life is precious but finite. Consider that you know that there is no escaping these realities. But then consider that in the Bible God has said, yes, but I will have mercy. Consider that God will intervene into the darkness and despair of this world by plunging himself, in fact, into darkness. I say that because you need to go to the cross to really understand this. And there in the darkness of Golgotha, discover there the reality of God's solution to the darkness of the world. It was to plunge himself and the person of God the Son into that darkness. For God the Son, who had a perfect, everlasting relationship with the Father, to cry out in anguish and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To cry out there in that turmoil of his own soul. To experience the darkness of that place as he became sin for us. To experience the, 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 the bearing of sin in his own body. That was the salvation of God for us. Because there the great exchange takes place. The guilt of humankind laid on the shoulders of God the Son. And the life of the Son and the resurrection given to us in everlasting hope. The reason I say that is because David, when he rejoices in all of this, remember, he's not looking at the cross. He can't see it. It's, it's a way off in the distance, in the far future for him. Instead, David is looking at the law. He's looking at the Torah. He's looking at things like the, the law's instructions about the ceremonial law, for example, the ceremonial law which includes the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, two animals are brought in for sacrifice. One of them is chosen by lot, and on that one, the sins of the people are ceremonially pressed down on its head. The high priest would lay the sin of the people on it. He would lay his hands on this, and he would recite the sins of the people. And then that animal is taken away. There's an animal that's slain and its blood is shed and sprinkled over the mercy seat as a barrier between God's wrath and the people to avert that attention that sin deserves. But the animal with the sin placed upon it, it's led away off out into the wilderness. It's gone. It's departed. It, it, it leaves the people. That's what happens with us. Our, our sin is, is totally taken away. 
And all of the things in our lives that are wrong and all of the things in our lives that are broken and all of the things in our lives that point us towards the awful reality of God's divine justice being inevitable and resulting in death finally, all of that is taken and carried away by Jesus, by the Messiah. And in its place, we are given the promise of Christ. In him there are the words of everlasting life. In him there is the promise of salvation and life eternal because he has said it is finished. His sin bearing came to its conclusion. He, he took our guilt upon himself and it was finished. And because the sin bearing was done, forgiveness, grace flows like a river. And that tonight is what this psalm is pointing us towards. It's saying to us, look how precious this is. Look at how wonderful God's blessing is. It's, it's better than gold. It's better than honey. And there is great rewards to be found in heeding what the word says. Now, that leads David to a conclusion. It leads him to that point where he says, who can discern his errors? Who can understand their own hearts in light of all of this? Tonight, that's what we're invited to do. We're invited to examine our hearts, to question and wonder The obvious conclusion, of course, is there's sin to be found there. There is a toll of sin stored up in each one of us. That's why David says he needs God to declare him innocent. He can't declare it of himself. He can't stand before God and say, I am innocent of all of this. Because he knows his life lies under that steady gaze of the sun, which is inescapable, and all of his lies would be exposed. This is, you know, David of, you know, the, the sin with Bathsheba, the sin with killing Uzziah, the sin with numbering the people when he wasn't really meant to, the, the sin of his arrogance and his presumption, and so on. This is David we're talking about. This is not someone who is in any way perfect. And he knows it just as much as we do. And he says, Lord, declare me innocent. How is that possible? How can that be? Well, tonight it's only possible to be declared innocent if somebody else steps in. If somebody else takes the place. If somebody else becomes the substitute for us and takes our guilt away. And that is where innocence is found for us. Through the declaration of God saying, you are free now David then goes on, and, and verse twelve, sorry, verse thirteen is, is is a strange. It's got a strange word in it. Keep me from presumptuous sins. What David's recognizing there is that for us as Christians, as believers, as followers of God, we can know all of this. So we can know Jesus has died for us. 
We can know that Jesus has taken away our guilt. We can know and experience the reality of the resurrection power of God. We can know new life. But we can still sin against light. That knowing all of this, we can still do the wrong thing. We can still choose to do evil. And so David's recognizing that there's a dependence, a humble dependence remains upon us. As long as we're in this world, we're not going to escape that need. We need grace continually to sustain us. So I say that to you tonight if you're a believer. Don't become complacent. Don't become complacent in your walk with the Lord and say, well, you know, actually, I can go on myself. What you need are the same things that David recognized needing in the psalm. We need to know the character of God. We need to know the ways in which that's revealed. Looking at the world and seeing by the light of nature what can be revealed there and being astonished at the magnificence of our God and his great power, but also by spending time in the word, by devoting yourself to the scriptures, by listening to what God is saying to us and realizing that in all of this and all that God is saying to us, he's taking us and he's shaking us and he's saying, be my child. Just live as my child. In the full light of what I have shown you and told you. you know, I, I, I kind of didn't quite get that until I had kids myself a wee bit. And I kind of think the way my kids behave now. There's times I want to just grab them and say, just do what I tell you. Because they're disobedient. And that's how we are as God's children. We can be disobedient and we recognize it. And, and to recognize and to cure, to be cured of that disobedience, it's not merely a matter of us trying harder. It's a matter of us saturating ourselves in what God has told us in his word. And finding the renewal that he brings because the law of God revives the soul. Because the testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. Because the precepts of the Lord bring joy into our hearts. It's for all of these reasons that we need to keep coming back to God's word as believers. We never graduate beyond it. We never say, well, that's it. I'm done with the word. Now I can move on to the new thing. We need to live in that dependence on what God is saying to us in his word so that we will be declared innocent ultimately of transgression. So our lives will be kept pure. There's no getting away from these simple first things. And so that takes us to that conclusion. If our response to recognizing what God is saying to us is to realize our need, to realize that he is the one who can save us, he is the one who will save us, it leaves us in a place where we have to ask, what profession do I make? What do I say now? What do you say tonight walking out the door of this church? Do you say, well, that's given me something to think about. I hope it has, but that's not enough. Does it say, does it lead you to a place where you can say, the Lord is my rock and my redeemer? He's the only firm ground on which I can stand. The world around us, it tells us to find that in loads of other places. You know, find your truth. Believe in yourself. As if somehow believing in yourself is the solid ground on which you can stand. It's not. The only solid ground we're going to find is in Christ. So will you tonight stand on Christ as he's revealed in Scripture, as the Holy Spirit brings him to us? 
as he's shown to us? Do we, do we recognize that as firm ground where we can stand sure and be safe? And do we recognize that he has redeemed us and brought us, bought us even, with a price and rescued us from the grave to life everlasting? He is my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer tonight, Lord, is that you would truly enlighten us and enliven us and fill us with the joy that comes from your revelation of yourself. We thank you that that found its climax in the person of Jesus, that Jesus is the great truth of God, the word of God made flesh to dwell among us, and we have seen him. We've seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so tonight, Lord, may we find that he is indeed our rock and our redeemer. And may we be kept, therefore, and secure in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.